Hi, my name is Sokuren, and I'm one of Sokuzan's monks. Sokuzan so freely offers his love to us and his wisdom through these talks, and never asks us for anything in return. If you value what he does and what he is, and want them to continue, please visit our donate page at sokukoji.org. Thank you. Mission of Buddhism into China and up into Japan and over to the United States. And trying to reconnect with the inspiration of what we're doing that beyond any um, title or institution, the heart of our practice is to endeavor to look directly at what the Buddha saw himself. And beyond that, everything is a support. Everything is intended to um, provide some sort of aid or some direction on the path. But looking at this idea of Zen, that's essentially what Zen is. It's the direct, direct transmission of the mind from the Buddha through 89 generations to Sokozan. And it, it is not a different understanding, but it's been presented in many different ways. So I will go back a little bit, and some of you have heard a lot of this before, but many of you have not, to that first transmission over into China. What was it that set the foundation for this lineage that we call Zen? What was it that was brought over to China that now arises here in Battle Creek, Michigan, or on Zoom as Sokokoji Buddhist Temple Monastery? And that started with the transmission of Bodhidharma, our first Chinese ancestor, and he came over to China in what sounds like the most terrifying way, a three-year journey at sea, We're stopping from port to port, so it wasn't just three years in the water. And he brought one thing with him, and that was his direct perception of mind. He did not um, come to China with the backing of an institution. And so he came into this country where Buddhism had been established for hundreds of years, but in a more scholastic form, a form that emphasized um, studying and mastering the sutras. And he endeavored to point directly at what this was beyond just the sutras. So he sat down and um, looked at his mind for nine years in a cave, it's said. And as it, as it continued its transmission to his first Dharma heir, which was Hui Ko and Senkan, it wasn't until the fourth generation of Chinese ancestors that we see the first monasteries being established. So we have very strong forms. We have a building of practice. We have a particular way in which we practice. There's a particular way in which we study, but it wasn't for four generations in China before communal Zen began to take hold. And it took another four generations before we started seeing self-sustaining Zen monasteries because it was persecuted a great deal. It's, it threatened the established forms of Buddhism. So there's the Zen master Bai Zhang who said, a day without work is a day without food. And so the monks didn't just sit and sit and sit. They had to work to sustain themselves. And that's a precious aspect of Zen. And that's why it, it extends so far beyond the monastery walls and into the rooms of each one of you and everyone that's joining us here in the Zendo is that we don't strictly find our spiritual practice in one special place. Although we need special places and we need special containers. 
but sometimes there's this thought of um, wishing it would be different, wishing our lives were different to support a more spiritual life, wishing our lives were such that we could just meditate until we died. And, and that's fine. But to not miss the opportunity that whatever is showing up in front of us, just like in meditation, that as our lives arise in front of us, that's where our attention needs to turn. So again, this institution of, of having a building, having a room, having a teacher, having sutras to study is, is very important. But we're not going to find the truth inside of the sutras, and we're not going to find the truth inside of a building or an organization. We have to find the truth within ourselves as Bodhidharma endeavored to transmit. As Dogen endeavored to transmit into Japan, as Colvin endeavored to transmit into the United States, as Sokozan endeavors to transmit to us. So as we work with these forms, as we work with the concepts of Buddhism, as we work with the elaborations, to have that reminder that what is at our roots, and that was, what is it that Buddha saw? And being a human being, it would be undifferentiated for any one of us. It's not lacking in any way, shape, or form. And if we were to see what this is, it doesn't grow. That it is simply a matter of sitting down and beginning to see clearly the way in which we place demands or expectations on phenomena as it arises. And this probably is maybe is a good time to talk about an opportunity to do some of that training, to do some of that um, sitting down and looking at the walls. Most of you have heard um, starting February 1st, Sokokoji is doing something new and we are going to sit for a month. We're going to practice Shikantaza for 51 hours a week without sutra chanting, without book studies. Uh, Sokozan will probably give one talk a week at that point. So for all the time we find to, in a way, entertain, entertain ourselves with Buddhism, Sokozan is encouraging us as a community to lessen the entertainment. Maybe you don't get rid of it entirely. But for that month of February, whatever your connection is to practice and to Sokozan and to the community, to see if we can't lean into that a little bit, to return to that int intention or that inspiration, the the first transmission of Bodhidharma, train the mind, the main transmission of Sokozan, train the mind. And what all the Zen teachers who have seen this have talked about, all the teachers dating back to the Buddha, sit down and train the mind. And it has to be done in a way that doesn't make any demands. And I think this is something that it may take us years to navigate or maybe decades or lifetimes to understand is that as soon as we take our seat on the cushion, there we are, this is Buddha, that this is Buddha. Yesterday, um, we heard Unyo talk about the first koan in the Book of Serenity where the Buddha takes his seat. That was it. That was the koan, the, Bod the Buddha took his seat. Or was it, who had Yaoshan, who was asked to teach? Does anybody remember who that? Sokaren? Maybe she's there. Shoka's there, I think. Yaoshan was asked to teach in the other koan, and um, he'd been not teaching. And so finally he said, okay, I'll, I'll teach. And so he takes his seat, 
And after a moment, he gets up and leaves. And his attendant is like, what are you doing? We asked you to teach. And Yao Shan said, um, masters of the sutras will teach the sutras and masters of the treatises will teach the treatises. How can you find fault in this old monk? That, what, what more could be done than for somebody to take their seat? And of course, we don't see that, so we, we probably need to hear about it a little bit. But when we come to this month of meditation practice, you, you take your seat. As Coben said, you get your own authority. You take your seat and you endeavor in as far as you can to not make any uh, movement to differentiate what arises in the mind. We endeavor not to push, pull, or look away. And that is what I understand to be the heart of this teaching, the heart of Sokazan and this lineage, this community, and the heart of um, the entire religion of Buddhism going back to the Buddha. See this for yourself, the Buddha's last words. Um, work out your salvation with diligence. So with that being said, are there questions about meditation or this lineage that's coming to us? Milka? Milka bowing. If it looks like we're lacking or missing something, how do we work with that? Whenever something shows up like that, it's not to be worked with in the sense of that is not a shortcoming. That's not an indicator of our path itself. That is the very texture that's presenting itself to us to give our attention to. That self-deprecation, I don't know why that's so seductive that no matter how much we sit, we will always find fault in what we're doing. And it may work the other way. No matter how little we sit, we'll always be very proud of what we're doing. And neither one of those are anything more than what we need to observe, what we need to endeavor to receive. We work closely with a teacher. That's, um, that is a strong emphasis in the Zen lineage and another lineage is to work closely with a teacher because oftentimes if we become our own guides too quickly, really what's guiding us is our preferences. And it seems that a teacher can disrupt or interrupt those preferences so that we might be able to see something that we had not seen or look more closely at what we've taken for granted. So when, when you start to have that story of where you're lacking, there's nothing to do with that other than um, you could say in a sense, give it the benefit of the doubt in, in that you just receive it. You just look at it and notice the spontaneous elaborations that want to tail um, along with it. If we see the shifting from the lacking to feeling proud or something, um, how do we practice with that? It's the same way. It's just to continue to be observed. If we take anything <clears throat> as an event, like an emotion, a storyline, and we go towards it with some sort of mentality of fixing it or an antidote. It's like we want to replace one form of duality with more refined duality. It's, it's not the truth. There are relative situations, though, that we might, we might pacify. They, they may be so disruptive that it's not particularly supportive to um, just let it run its course. That would be very situational with the teacher. So there may be a time where the teacher comes in and says, 
uh, I want you to do this or maybe work, work with this aspect. But um, to self-guide ourselves through that, again, the only tool we have is the conditioning. So we take one form of conditioning as it arises and say, well, I want to get it better by this conditioning. And now you've got two layers instead of one or 99 layers instead of 98. So that, that sense of um, being willing to take our seat in the midst of whatever the mind presents us. It's a difficult practice, and that's probably why we need the supports we have, that some people, maybe all they need to do is hear one koan or hear one line or one verse, and that's, they understand. Um, good for them. <laughs> when working with the teacher, is there a refinement that happens? There may be, but it's not one that's, that's um, cultivated through strategy. I think any one of us, as we relate to Sokozan and as we relate to the community and the teachings, there's inevitably going to be a natural change or shift or um, refinement, as you use the word. But it's not something that you can um, hurry along. It's like you just have to be really confused and you sit in that confusion and the demand to change the confusion may, may soften. But I, it's not something that we often notice. Um, as Sokazan said, sometimes maybe those closest to us are the ones that notice it more than us. Um, <laughs> the joke, it's not a joke. This is what my mom said to me. Um, <laughs> she said, Kyle, I wish you were still with Jesus, but I'm glad you're happy. <laughs> As a high, high praise from my mother. <laughs> Wasn't that funny, Cheryl? <laughs> the teacher may see it, will see it probably as well, but is unlikely to acknowledge it. And that's um, part of what I find so inspiring about this particular community is that um, I feel that we have a teacher that, that really acknowledges the Buddha nature within each one of us that says, you can see this. And so if, if you get too much cuddling and comfort for your you know, minor understandings, you start to say, oh, this is pretty good. Instead, you have a teacher that says, that's not it. Keep going, keep going. And that, that can be painful at times. But also, um, how how many teachers are out there teaching in that way? There are probably some. I've I've not come across them yet. Further questions? John has a question. He says, as Buddhism travels, it has embraced every culture it has met. Are there aspects of our American culture, the United States at Zen, can affected or been affected? Very much so, John. I think more, more than anywhere, the practice, we've had to learn to practice the path as lay practitioners, that even the monks that live here have to maintain jobs. I do not feel that's a shortcoming on the path. It's just a new arena of practice, whereas there's always been lay practitioners. 
um, on the path. But there, if you wanted to completely give your life over to monasticism, there was support for it. It's not as much the case here in the United States. So Buddhism um, endeavors to meet the territory as it is. But it, if it doesn't lose that heart, which is personal realization, then it, it can be very genuine, sincere wherever it shows up. Um, and it, it's really wonderful that we don't have to evaluate the sincerity of it, of where it's showing up elsewhere. All we have to do is, uh, this is where I need to practice. This is where I'm at on my path and have a respect, whether you understand others' paths or not, to, to let them work with their minds as it shows up, even within the context of a single community. Mozuku? Mozuku Vine. When it seems like work is a sharp contrast with our practice or in the way of our practice, what is a misunderstanding there? It's not that there's not relative discouragement or that, that type of demand from having to sustain yourself may not take you away from the practice, but to resolve that matter is not to resolve the fundamental situation. So right now you can go to war with that as much as you want, but that's what's showing up. Now you may decide it's too much and I quit my job and that's fine. Or you may decide I can't do this practice. I need to just work my job and that's fine. But it's not about, as I understand it, it's not about taking the correct path in the sense of if you strategize how you structure your relative life, that's the most important thing. But that attitude of not going to war with what is showing up, and I've been quoting this more because it's been helpful if you go back into Sokazan's meditation primer, I think the second instruction, or maybe it's the third, is don't refuse your life. And he says, we get, we get so confused because we refuse the very life that is presented to us. That we have a little bit of say-so, but you're going to have to pay your bills. You're going to have to sustain yourself somewhere and somehow. So life is presenting itself to you and you have, we can receive it, we can endeavor to work with it, or we can struggle with it thinking that that's going to get us somewhere. Um, and if you were to leave your job and become a full-time resident in the sense of all you have to do is practice the forms, you may be surprised to find that that, that texture has not gone anywhere, that that struggle is in other aspects. So I, I think it's important that this is what's showing up for me. I, I receive it. If a change needs to be made, that's okay. But to just tell yourself that story of this is an obstacle on my path, or I wish it could be more like this, is um, is more about thinking that there's something to get or somewhere to be. Instruction is to yeah, don't look away or you know don't go to war, don't accept, don't look away. And we observe how we can't do that. <laughs> is there is there anything more? Um, that we should bring to a situation where we're kind of using the practice or using the teachings as an excuse to look away from something. I think just awareness. I don't, I don't think there's much more to amp up. And I don't feel that the practice is um, necessarily, again, applying solutions to problems. So 
we bring our attention to our practice. So if we're going to bring anything to a situation, it would be our, our awareness. Um, and then situationally, there may be other things to, to do as well, but I would do that very intimately and closely with, you know, with the work, working with the teacher. Jinshu. A question from John. Can you speak to the form, formalness and form here? such as the bowing formality and sitting facing away from the screen, as is noted on your website, John Bowing? Sure. I can start with the first part, looking away from the screen. Um, the way we are instructed to practice meditation <laughs> is by facing a wall. And if not facing a wall, facing uh, where there's not very much happening. So if there's not a lot happening in your room, you might face the center of the room. But the idea is that the sense of sight, which is the one most often excluded in meditation, is included, but you're also not overly stimulating it. You're not putting a lot of entertainment. It's just the sense consciousness is there. As far as the formality of a monastery, it can be pretty strong. There's, there's an entire 8.5 by 11, 12-point font of forms for the residents to follow while they live here. But the forms as they're taught here has a tremendous amount of softness in the midst of the strength that the example Sokazan gives or any one of the residents might give is that they, if they're living here, are expected to be at all sitting forms, all study forms, and all work forms. But if they can't, all they have to do is say, I can't make it today. As simple as I'm sleeping in today. It may sound silly, but that's all you have to say. I'm sleeping in. I didn't sleep well last night not feeling well, I'm going to lay down. I need a little bit of time, I'm going for a walk. So the structure is there, but each individual has to relate to it through their own intelligence, as opposed to being forced to adhere to it. The adherence creates too much credential. It creates too much of somebody that can accomplishment and that accomplish it. And therefore, they're further on the path. And for those that cannot, well, they need to find another path. So each one of us brings our own intelligence into a structure like this. And it's, it's really incredible to see how uniquely, even in a Dharma talk of 50 people, Sokazan may respond to each individual. Sometimes we get exasperated and we want Sokazan to cut somebody off. It's just like, I'm done listening to this person. And he lets him talk. And other times he, he just cuts right to it. What's your question? What do you want to know? Um, there's no way to know what that is, but it's a very unique and, and situational thing that um, for me shows up as there's nothing contrived about it. It's not, it's not consistent enough to be contrived. Jinchu. A question from Ian in Kalamazoo. I find this tension from this lineage of needing to work closely with the teacher and needing to trust my own intelligence. How do I work with that tension? Don't, uh, please do not do anything with that. We have to be very tentative and slow in moving into a relationship with a teacher and it should not be done based on how you're seeing somebody else do it. It's not a relationship that I think should be taken lightly and that's why I think it's important that you really look at what you are asking for and ask questions about what that means. And even then, you have to see for yourself because what it means for me is very different 
for what it means for you, Ian, or for anybody else. So I would say move slowly. And the best thing you can do is just receive that, that instruction over and over of how to practice meditation. Return to that practice of meditation. As questions come up, you ask the teacher and you look at how you're responded to. You look at what that looks like. It seems that it may become choiceless and at some point you won't be able to help but to formally become a student. But it, it shouldn't be done because you feel like you have to have a teacher or you need to move into something out of some ideas about it. It really should be a choiceless situation. For some people, it's it's interesting to see how quickly it shows up. Um, Gyokuro, you were one of them. It was like, wow, <laughs> she's coming back already. <laughs> and for others, it, it took a very long time. I know I took a couple of years to move into that relationship formally, as did others. You can practice here either way. Andrea Bowing. Yes. Um, how has Shintoism um, affected the way Zen Buddhism is practiced? Bowing. It's a, a good question. I'm not. I'm not terribly familiar with um, Japanese culture. It's it's an interesting thing to be a, a Soto Zen monk, and I don't know much about Japan. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure how that works with um, relating to ancestors, but I imagine culturally. If you were to go to Japan, you'd see a very particular flavor that would be different than the Soto Zen that arises in the United States. I appreciate the question. I don't think I can say too much about it, though. Jiuzan. What does it mean to trust our intelligence and include the teacher? <clears throat> Trusting our intelligence, as I understand it, is not necessarily or even at all trusting our thoughts about it. Um, it may be more of trusting than not knowing that you don't need to move into something simply because the teacher has said it, nor do you need to move into something because you think you need to. Sokazan's teaching of don't do anything unless you have to is a way of trusting one's intelligence. Um, that being said, as you become um, closer, like in your case, you are going to want to give a lot more consideration to what the teacher is saying than perhaps when you first met him. So that is the other thing is as you formalize your relationship through Jukai or you formalize your relationship through sewing and Okesa to understand what are you asking from the teacher as you take your seat more thoroughly. And I only mean that in the sense of there are differences in forms as you sew these garments would also say you are not excluded from the teachings because you've not sewn those garments. It's just that some people may need that type of support. Um, I think of, I know this can be a touchy point because some people take vows, some people do not, some formally, some informally. In the Maha Pari Nibbana Sutta, Ananda asks the Buddha for like his final teaching and the Buddha's like, what are you talking about? I've given you all my teachings. I didn't, I got no secrets. There's nothing left. And similarly, these teachings are not secret. They're not waiting for you to um, take a vow. They're waiting for you to ask for them. And so you move into this, your energy dictates 
what you receive. For some people, again, it may be formalizing a vow, and for others, it may not be. Go slowly. Too late for you. <laughs> <laughs> Shoto. Shoto bowing. How do we prioritize the awareness without um, pushing down like the thinking process? Well, the awareness is not obstructed by the thinking process. The, the awareness is not in competition with anything as I understand it. Um, but that's not something that you can just think. So we begin to look more closely at what is thinking, what is awareness when we sit down to meditate. And it is not a conceptual exercise. So when Sokazan encourages us to return, that's how we exercise that is just the returning itself. So just notice any direction you want to take with the thoughts, whether it's indulging them or getting rid of them or thinking that if I had less thoughts, I'd have more awareness. Sometimes Sokazan talks about prioritizing the awareness where he uses this image of the awareness becomes, goes out in front and begins to lead. You're not leading with your thought patterns. But the thoughts, he doesn't say the awareness destroys the thoughts or you know interrupts the thoughts. It's just that lead with the awareness. And I feel that the best we can practice that is um, not leading with an idea of what should happen, just what is this a question he sometimes returns us to. Brian. Brian, Brian. Um, so Zen often says, things fall apart when you look at them. What's falling apart? I think that when we look at something in a way of actually looking at it and not just thinking about it, we may begin to see the way in which something gets fuel in the way that it's being maintained. We may not be aware that we're maintaining it ourselves intentionally, but there may be an unconscious maintenance occurring. So when the attention goes on to it, it may become much weaker and much more suspicious. Um, Whereas while we're just going about our daily lives, we just take a lot of things for granted to be the case. So it, it gets a type of maintenance through that ignorance. The falling apart doesn't necessarily mean falling apart into nothingness. I feel more so the way in which when it is believed to be real or we don't see it to be unreal, it begins to make demands on how we function. So to me, the falling apart is more of the humor around just seeing it and not doing anything with it. Uh, and again, it's, it's important. I feel it's important to understand it's, it's not an intentional thing. You can't go in there and say, well, now I'm not going to fuel it or now I'm not going to let it make demands on me because that very voice is the one making demands now. So you, you really have to have a sense of, um, in a way, spaciousness that if it needs to be there, let it be there. And if it if it needs to go away, it'll go away. Eric. Eric, 
earlier you were speaking about transmission and transmitting. You also said that Buddha nature, if nature is in each of us. Yes. Could you please say more about what is meant by transmission in this context? That's a really good question because the teacher can't give you the Buddha nature. It's not, it's not an object. It's not something that is cultivated or nurtured or, or lacking is the sense in me. It's not lacking or in, it is not nor lacking or in excess, something along that. But it does seem that this path is transmitted, ways in which to work with the mind. And it does seem that it has to be transmitted in a living way, because if it's not in a living way, it's imitation or replication. So in a sense, it seems that the teacher's presence itself provides us an opportunity to see the truth for ourselves, that if the teacher is no longer buying into that duality of self and other, although maybe functioning out of it, provides us an opportunity to look for ourselves. And I do feel that when Sokazan teaches, the the totality of the teachings is available, that the transmission has occurred, but it it is that transmission that it's to be seen for ourselves. Why did Bodhidharma face the wall for nine years when he arrived in China? I can create a story if it would be helpful. (laughs) And that's what it is. All of those, whether historically accurate or not, as practitioners, we should relate to them as encouragement to see for ourselves. One of the ways I've heard it talked about that was supportive to me. So the first koan... (laughs) of the Blue Cliff Records, which Kozan and Senchu have talked about, was Bodhidharma's, Bodhidharma's interaction with Emperor Wu. Emperor Wu of Liang was famous for building monasteries and stupas and funding a lot of um, work to translate Buddhist texts. <coughs> and he shared this with Bodhidharma and Bodhidharma, or he asked Bodhidharma, what merit have I accumulated? And Bodhidharma said, no merit. And Emperor Wu asked, um, what, what is the highest meaning of Buddhism? And Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness, nothing sacred. So Emperor Wu said, who, who is this monk speaking to me? And Bodhidharma said, don't know. And one story says that at that point, Bodhidharma left because he saw there was not fertile ground for him to transmit the teaching. So he went north. And I feel that one way of talking about his time in the north with the nine years sitting facing the wall was seeing how to transmit those teachings. I don't feel that realization provides omniscience or inexhaustible knowledge. You may see it, but you have to also look at who you're trying to transmit it to. You may have to see what is a skillful way to communicate this. And also, I think Senshu might have said yesterday, and I thought this was helpful as well, is it may have just been an example because meditation was not being practiced much at that time. There weren't meditation halls. So for him to sit down for nine years and practice meditation um, may have functioned as an example for other people to see what is he doing? What is that about? 
Um, and we've talked about that with Dogen as well, that after he returned from his time in China with Ru Jing, it said that he spent three years before he began teaching. He was just practicing. And I, I don't know what that's like, but it, it seems that if he had a profound realization with Ru Jing of what this is, he may have needed to look at how do I communicate this to others? Um, even the Buddha didn't immediately start teaching. It wasn't until he was asked that he began teaching. Nyoka? Nyoka Balayam. Earlier you said um, something about trusting uncertainty. What is, what, what supports that uncertainty? <clears throat> Could you say a little bit more about what you're asking? came up when you were talking about <clears throat> um, fuel in terms of, you know, us trying to do something with things. And so I was trying to think of what, what supports the uncertainty without fuel. Are you talking about uncertainty in the sense of doubt or in the sense of our fear of spaciousness? Fear of spaciousness. I don't feel that that is that type of space is necessarily something that needs to be supported. It's something we tend to interrupt more often than not. And that's a teaching I receive quite regularly is when I bring to Sokazan my discomfort, my fear, my confusion. He, he's always encouraged me, don't, don't leave that. That's how you can teach. We shift into what we know, then we're just buying into the mundane. So in as far as we can, noticing that when we have that space where there's no demands occurring, the first thing that arises is fear because the self-centeredness doesn't like being without a reference point to reassure it. And so having a willingness to just be afraid, having a willingness to just be uncomfortable and not ever leave that. And that's what's hard is the thought that initially, well, if I do that, it'll become more comfortable because we still want to leave it on a subtle level. And in actuality, it may never become comfortable, but as Sokazan has said, it may just be that you don't mind so much anymore. And that's another thing he said to me after a Dharma talk, and some of you have heard this. He said, do you know what the difference between the two of us is? And I very smartly said no, because it was a trap. <laughs> and he said, he said, speaking of himself, he said, I know I'm a fool and you're still trying not to be one. He's not fighting with anything. I'm still trying to claw my way out of what is, what is happening. When we see what's happening, like if we're trying to claw our way out, is there anything we need to do with that? Just endeavor to receive. No, again, there's no particular antidote to that. Um, just endeavoring to receive, noticing the texture, because as it gets more intense, intense, it becomes harder not to want to do something with it. So as it escalates as far as sensation or thoughts or emotions, endeavoring to receive that. And also knowing sometimes it's okay to excuse yourself for a little bit if that makes some sense to, to go for a walk if it's too much or 
go read a book. Chinchu. Question from Joseph in Kalamazoo. I'm noticing a feeling of discomfort that I sometimes label as guilt for not sitting enough. How do I not let that feeling turn into a poison which undermines my practice? It's it's hard to say, and and I would say if if you set a schedule, set a form, this is where I sit throughout the week and do your best to observe that form. That's probably a very good starting place. And then from there, the support of a teacher I find is, for me, um, just incredibly valuable because there may be times where we do need to sit more or we, we may need to sink down into the cushion a little bit more. But it's also, remember, it's not just about accomplishing that meditation. It's sometimes about having the form, having the container to return to. So setting up a weekly form, endeavoring to do that as best as you can, and relating to the three jewels, the teacher, the teaching, and the sangha as much as we can, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the sangha. Darling. Um, earlier you were talking to um, Mizuku about uh, going to war with our life. Um, when things in our life appear um, that require action, are there ways that we could do that? Um, difficult things appear? Are there ways we could work with that that would not um, make it worse? Allie. It would, it would just really depend on the situation. And it's important to say that it's not about inactivity, that action are very simple things and sometimes complicated things that we just have to address in our life. And so I, th- I think having a good foundation of practice is going to probably be supportive and coming back to that, not doing anything unless you have to. I had a boss who knew that she had a pretty hot temper. And so she'd always make me proofread her emails before she sent them. And I would say, do you really need to say that? And she's like, no, I guess not. So sometimes taking that moment before we react, taking note of the charge, taking note of the intensity, and see if we can't look very closely at what it is we're responding to. It's, it's kind of like when Sokazan has partners sit across from one another and look into each other's eyes for 60 seconds or 90 seconds. You're, in a way, you're, you're reconnecting with what's actually happening in front of you before you jump into what you think is happening in front of you. So similarly, you may look at the situation you're endeavoring to respond to for a moment before you respond. Are there any other questions, Junshu? Question from Brian Bell. Mm-hmm. By practicing facing the wall time and time again, how does this train the mind? Is the training to increase our ability to receive everything, in parentheses, he has awareness? which eventually leads to enlightenment? Well, I was almost with you. (laughs) Sitting down, holding very still and observing the senses is in a way teaching us, training us to receive. It's beginning to prioritize awareness over our thought process. But the last part is something that I don't know how much I can explain or go into other than to say that 
There is not a causal relationship between practice and realization. That realization is not a product, it is not created, it is not a result. And that is one of those Zen conundrums as well, then why do we practice? And sometimes I feel that we practice because we need to see all of the relativity that we take for absolute. We have to see all the ways in which we get stuck on particular aspects of our mind and our senses. Really, I don't know why I do these. I really like Zen teachings. And, and one of Hui Nung's um, Dharma heirs, his name was Nanyue. And Nanyue was the teacher of Matsu. And Nanyue came in and watched and saw Matsu was sitting in meditation. He said, what are you doing? And Matsu said, I'm meditating. He said, why are you meditating? Matsu said, I'm meditating so that I can become the Buddha. So Nanyue sat down and started rubbing a stone. And Matsu said, what are you doing? He said, I'm rubbing a stone. Why are you rubbing a stone? To make a mirror. Matsu says, you can't make a mirror by rubbing a stone. And Nanyue said, you can't become the Buddha by meditating. And so there's the conundrum. I think Dogen addresses this a little bit when he talks about practice realization that just to sit down, this is the Buddha. This is the Buddha. To just sit down, you actualize Buddha. But we may have to practice actualizing Buddha the rest of our lives until we fundamentally see that we've actualized Buddha. Wulong bowing. Yes. I was struck by your exchange with Sokuzan about the uh, fool. Um, My question is, what is being a fool? I think one way of talking about it is, is you actually don't know what to do and you're not at war with it. When Sokazan teaches, as he has said, it's, it's pretty rare for him to have much of anything planned out and how terrifying it is to just sit down in front of a group of people with a diversity of expectations and projections and be asked to talk about this. So, to me, it has to do with not knowing and, and not having any demands. Kabali, when the teacher sits down in front of us as a fool, what occurs when we ask questions? One way of talking about that would be that image of a mirror. That if the teacher is, and the fool is just a teaching, that's, that's a path. That, you know, maybe there's a feeling of being a fool, maybe not, I don't know. But if there's not much happening, then um, there's an opportunity to actually respond. There's actually an opportunity for that mirroring, mirroring to be uninterrupted. Whereas it's harder when we relate to one another for that mirroring to happen because so often we're inputting our own confusion. So you ask somebody a question and then they look at their own minds and they respond out of their opinions and you receive their opinions and translate that. Whereas the teacher is much less likely to be concerned with what direction it takes. So there's a, a soft, a lightness in the response, even if that response is um, quite terrifying. Nokabawi. So does it matter what kind of question we ask, Alan? It's an area that any one of us could look at. Sokazan will often ask people to refine or simplify. I think that's the word he uses, simplify your question or paraphrase your question. 
So we might notice how our questioning is led with wanting to show what we understand or wanting to limit the ways in which the teacher can respond. And we notice it can be much more uncomfortable to ask an open-ended question because we think, what if he doesn't understand what I'm asking? And again, we're, we're kind of stuck on this idea that if we get the right information, that'll be most helpful. Um, and I do feel that questioning, asking questions is not so much a form of production as an openness. You're, you're acknowledging some willingness to receive. Um, so I think it's a good idea. It's something that we look at and we practice and we don't necessarily need to amp up. Many of you have probably been joining for years and have never asked a question and that's not a problem. That's not a problem. But as you ask questions, you show you show everybody who you are more clearly. You show the teacher how to how they might be able to relate to you more directly. So there is a vulnerability in in asking those questions. You Hongbaoing. Yes. You just mentioned that just receive. Sometimes when I'm not able to receive, I feel the sense of loss with grief. Are, are those emotions that just look at them raw? Spying? Yes, but they're also receiving you, Hong. They are also receiving. There's, there is whatever showing up, there's an opportunity to receive it. So you may tell yourself that in a situation you didn't receive it, but you're still endeavoring to receive everything that arises. So if it's grief or loss or self-condemnation, there's no failing. You don't, you don't fail at that. You just endeavor to receive what shows up. It just sometimes does not fit our expectation of who we want to be. Um, it's difficult. We have strong ideas of who we want to be, and we don't actually want to be what shows up sometimes, but we still endeavor to receive it. You just mentioned the expectation. Is that our ego? Fine. <clears throat> yes. Yes, the expectation is an ego, but also, as Sokazan says, you don't have to get rid of that. So. You can have expectation without demands. It's not um, unreasonable. Um, Sokazans use the image of like the car in the parking lot. It's not un unreasonable to expect your cars out there when you when you go to leave. Um, so I don't think we need to go to war with expectations so much as see them. Thank you. I have one more question. Yes. When the fear of not put myself as, as a priority, including my practice, at the same time, the need to do my, fill up my responsibilities, I often feel the conflict. Um, if I take the time, more time for myself, including my practice, as sort of rushing the responsibilities that I have, I need to fill in. As a parent, you are too. How do you work with that, Bowie? Just You just have to do the best you can. You know, I, I don't have any particularly good advice. I can appreciate that. 
the best thing that happened to us is Rumi started preschool last week. And so there's a short <laughs> period during the day where I can try to smash everything in without having to cut apples or, you know, clean up toys. Um, if you can schedule that time to sit and also recognize that you can only do so much as far as modifying your relative situation. So just say, if you can be kind to yourself, invitation still stands. You can bring the whole family sometime if you'd like, and we'll entertain the kids while you stare at the wall with us. You know, Byron, yeah, that's one of our summer plans. Oh, good. So just uh, <laughs> be great. Thank you. Thank you. Any final questions this afternoon now? Shoto. Um, I've had a situation come up where um, I can see that I'm, I'm just locked down in a way something looks to me, and there's no curiosity of changing that. What is it to put people before ourselves when we're not even willing to? I could. I would say if, if you can, try not to outflow out of that. There may be nothing to do to interrupt that um, fixity in the mind, but if you can maybe soften up making it other people's problem, if you can endeavor to just take responsibility for that intensity without creating some sort of gesture physically or audibly, um, I think that may be the only place we can work with it and persisting in our practice to look at that. Um, I, I really appreciate Sokazan's reminders about it's not about results. And he's even said before, when I express my fears or concerns, it doesn't matter if Soka Koji falls apart. That's a, that's an incredible thing to say and mean, having invested so much of his life, giving his life to this, this practice and community to be able to say, it doesn't matter if this falls apart. So when we don't have that willingness, it's because we think if, if this outcome doesn't happen, something wrong has occurred. I'd like to thank everyone for being here this morning and um, hopefully Sokazan will be feeling better soon. Um, it just means a lot for me, to me, that you would share your practice with me and your questions. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. I want to ask you to help us expand, protect, bring energy into this mandala. So if you can go to the website, the donate page and help us, if you can, if you can. And if you would like to see these teachings continue.